It's April 24th, 2013, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we'll be your geeks in residence for the next hour. First, we'll look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond. And joining us today is Aaron Rosa from the UH Future Studies Department to tell us about an upcoming Governance Futures Lab. Finally, we'll learn about preparing students for life online and what it means to be a digital citizen. Have your questions and suggestions ready to call in or tweet, but first, the headlines. Well, there have been efforts to protect the endangered Hawaiian petrel, or ua'u, uh, bird for more than 40 years. A new study published in the journal Pacific Conservation Biology focuses on one of its main predators, feral cats. The study was based on photos and videos collected over two years, and the researchers, researchers say that it's the first time they've obtained direct evidence of feral cats stalking the bird's nest and killing young chicks. Scientists from the University of Hawaii, working with the National Park Service and the U.S. Geological Survey, used infrared digital cameras to monitor 14 Hawaiian petrol burrows on the slopes of Mauna Loa on the Big Island in 2007 and 2008. The team captured video of a feral cat waiting near the entrance of a burrow for over an hour and finally attacking a small chick when it emerged. They found the bird's remains nearby and were able to attribute other kills to feral cats based on similar remains. Well, the petrel spends most of its time at sea feeding on fish and other ocean creatures, but from March through October, they return to breeding grounds on Maui, Kauai, and the Big Island. Petrels lay one egg a year, making it easy for predators to dramatically impact the bird population. With an estimated 15,000 birds remaining in the wild, the Park Service and its partners are planning to build a fence to keep the feral cats and mongoose out of the 640 acres of petrol nesting areas within the Hawaiian Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. And, of course, this makes a lot of sense because if you look at the, the petrol, and I think uh, the albatross is another example of a, a bird that pretty much lays its eggs on the ground and uh, out at Ka'ena Point, as an example, they have they built a, a, a total enclosure or exclosure to prevent cats and mongoose and animals like that to enter in. Well, there was an interesting study out of the Smithsonian earlier this year that I remember that basically said that cats worldwide are one of the major reasons for the loss of mammals and birds around the world, and what are we going to do about it? I mean, it was a very, it was a, it was very, it was not, you know, it was not something appreciated by cat lovers. Well, and yeah, and but, actually that sparked a lot of other conversations mm-hmm. about whether, like, for example, cats um, being a preferable predator to rats, because cats might be attacking birds and animals, but rats also move on to berries and plants and stuff if they don't, you know, get their preferred uh, prey. So mm-hmm. they might be more dangerous to an environment and cats keep rats away as mm-hmm. well. So mm-hmm. it's, certainly an, it's certainly an interesting problem that they're facing there. And they're saying that they also have seen uh, cats attacking the palila bird and even the eggs of the nene bird, another endangered mm-hmm. species. Mm-hmm. So uh, a fence is a probably not a cheap solution, but certainly an effective one. White sharks are only periodically spotted in waters off Hawaii and are sometimes confused with other shark species, including the mako shark. Now researchers at UH, working with the State Department of Land and Natural Resources, have mapped out where and when white sharks visit the islands. In a new study published in the Journal of Marine Biology, scientists at the UH School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology partnered with the DLNR's Aquatic Resources Division to review all available sources of information that they could find on white shark spottings. While the study included data collected via various satellite tracking studies of white sharks, the team noted the information would be limited only to sharks that scientists could easily tag with trackers, mostly by following them to seal colonies. 
The team also reviewed records of sharks controlled program catch records, newspaper accounts of shark sightings and attacks, and photos and videos from various sources. Of course, they excluded data points in which the species of shark was not clear. The study noted that all white shark reports in Hawaii were adults, larger than 10 feet, and none were juveniles. That suggests that the species doesn't linger here nor give birth or raise young in Hawaiian waters. They also found differences between when male and female white sharks appear, revealing migration patterns that are likely driven by a two-year reproductive cycle. Male sharks are sighted in Hawaii from December through June, but females have been observed here year-round. Well, this is interesting, uh, of course, because, you know, it's only been sort of frequent maybe over the last uh, five years that we've started to hear about the great white shark being in Hawaiian waters. I mean, I don't never recall it uh, being advertised or or, uh, in the media of great white sharks here. And we always thought that the waters were too warm in Hawaii. But evidently, now that we're having more recorded sightings, uh, people are interested in, are they migrating? Are they breeding? What are they doing you know, in Hawaiian waters? Well, I think certainly the point also is that they, they noted a couple of media you know, reports of white sharks turning up in this year, just this year alone mm-hmm, since January, mm-hmm. and both of them were not, actually, but everybody remembers mm. that they were talking about white sharks. So they were saying, in addition to this study that shows that, for example, the females are here all the time, because, probably because it helps fetal development for the baby sharks, um, they were saying that you know at least we should start getting out there that uh, the Differences in the head shape is important. That's usually the only part of, a, hopefully, the only part of a shark that you would have any uh, experience with. And they said that you know, a mako shark has a more acute or a sharper pointy head mm-hmm, than mm-hmm. a white shark. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, hopefully helping the public better identify specifically which shark it is that they're looking at. Of course, we still have tiger sharks and a variety right. of other sharks here. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, it, yeah. perhaps add it to our, uh, our school curriculum is shark identification. Well, next up, you wouldn't think it from the weather we've seen this week, but annual rainfall over the Hawaiian Islands has actually been decreasing over the past quarter century. This according to a new study out of the International Pacific Research Center over at uh, UH Manoa. The research team took another look at rain gauge data from 12 stations spread across the state collected between the years of 1978 and 2010, but they they then utilized a new statistical analysis method to adjust for the countless variations in rainfall from one part of the island to the next. Even though wet and dry areas can be less than a mile apart in Hawaii, the study used statistical downscaling to track a general drying trend on heavy rain days. They then correlated them with atmospheric circulation patterns observed on those days. Some findings were not surprising such as torrential rains coming with winter Kona storms. Those are driven by moist airflow from the south. But when they looked at large circulation patterns that would be connected to them, they found evidence that they had noticeably shifted since 1978. And with that shift comes fewer weather disturbances during the typical rainy season, which runs from November through April. The study concludes that we can expect fewer heavy rain days and drier winter seasons Overall, throughout the end of this, uh, through the end of the century. Now, you know that's this is interesting. I've always often thought about this when, you know, in typical uh, sort of rainy days in Hawaii. I mean, it's the clouds blowing in from the trade winds, and you may have a stream of of rain going in a particular direction over the uh, the uh, koolaus. 
but it doesn't necessarily mean that the whole island is getting rained on. Like maybe this morning was an example of maybe the whole island getting rained on. But, but normally it's like a big cloud over one area, and they may be drenched, but other places are pretty dry. Right, and they're noting that the study doesn't even talk about specific rain events, and so the overall trends or the results that they're talking about won't apply to a specific valley or a specific mm-hmm, plains mm-hmm. area. But certainly I think that when they're talking about doing this for water resource and ecosystem management, uh, the question is, over the next 100 years, is it going to get drier or wetter? And they're saying that there's evidence that it would get drier. And certainly when we talk about drought conditions and, and uh, brush fires versus flooding and other concerns, you know, it could perhaps inform a change in policy or at least planning in mm-hmm. that direction. Mm-hmm. In uh, other space news, and in fact, speaking of rain, astronomers using the Keck Observatory atop Mount Ikea on the Big Island have kicked off a full month of observations focused on Saturn. A live webcast on Sunday, coupled with outreach on social media, highlighted some of the latest discoveries about the ringed planet. Saturn made science headlines earlier this month when a study, also using observations from Keck, concluded that the ice particles that make up the visible rings of Saturn were also forming rainwater that falls on the planet below. James O'Donoghue, lead author of the study as well as organizers of Sunday's kickoff event, said that his team was able to observe elements of Saturn that had never been mapped before, connecting charged water molecules detected on Saturn with uh, ice-heavy regions of its rings. Between the two, magnetic fields are creating a pathway for the ice particles in the rings to reach the surface. He told Science.com that an Olympic-sized swimming pool of water is falling on Saturn every day. And uh, this week, the focus is on auroras on Saturn, which are much like Earth's own northern lights. Fellow researcher Tom Stollard said on Sunday that they are now capturing much deeper data about that phenomenon and compared the advancement to moving from black and white to color. In addition to the Keck Observatory, the Saturn campaign also involves observers using the Cassini spacecraft, the Hubble Space Telescope, and the Very Large Telescope in Chile. They all hope to catch Saturn's shift into its spring season, which lasts seven years. Now, you know, this is kind of, of course, a favorite topic of ours, uh, anything that happens out in space. And I was looking for... cadets. Of course. And we were... I was looking for some uh, videos of this rain. And they actually have, on the Huffington Post, they have a... And they actually called it, you know, this really trippy sort of video of kind of a depiction of rain that's falling through the rings uh, done up by so, um, the music. The background music is by a band called the, the Gathering. But anyway, that's a side story. Yes. But it's very, it was very <laughs> melodic and very trippy watching. The other thing that I saw of a, a video of is the um, they did capture some video or uh, photos and they made it into like a tam- time-lapse video uh, from Cassini mm-hmm. of the Aurora, and uh, that's pretty cool too. Well, Cassini is again; it's a, actually it's a space telescope mm-hmm. in orbit around Saturn. It's been there since 2004. It's got missions through 2017. I, you know, I feel silly that of course there's ice particles in the rings. It's not just rock, um, and that that might have a part or interact somehow with the atmosphere of the planet. But this, you know, kind of picking up this magnetic pattern, and not just for the auroras, but also serving as a path for those particles to land on the island. Mm-hmm, and and mm-hmm. in fact, that rain creating the streaks that we see on the face of Saturn. I mean, it's certainly very interesting to better understand what we just take for granted. You know, oh, there are rings around the planet. There's a lot more going on. Right, and, you know, of course, whenever I hear rain on Saturn, I, I first think that it might be like acid rain, but this is actually H2O, I mean, water rain. Pretty interesting. Anyway, final couple of uh, quick updates or quick stories we wanted to share with you. Last month, we featured SnapZoom, a locally designed smartphone adapter for telescopes and binoculars. Now, the project has finally or officially launched on Kickstarter, and the SnapZoom team hopes to raise $55,000 in 
next month to um, go into full-scale production. You can back the project for as little as a dollar, but a $45 pledge will get you a SnapZoom adapter of your own. And for more information, you can visit snapzooms.com. I certainly backed that one. Mm -hmm. The University of Hawaii Manoa campus is known for its mix of architecture as well as for its lush greenery. The school recently received a Tree Campus USA designation from the National Arbor Day Foundation. And to make the trees easier to appreciate, the landscaping department has posted online its map of more than 3,000 trees on campus, which represent more than 475 different species. To check it out, you can go to manoa.hawaii.edu slash landscaping. Well, as an open data wonk, they should make this data set available on data.hawaii.gov. I'm sure that's phase two. Okay. Well, as a reminder, next Friday, May 3rd, Dr. Jill Tarter is speaking at the UH Manoa Kennedy Theater, Dr. Tarter, who is the chair of the SETI Institute, is the space researcher whom Jodie Foster's character was based on um, in the movie Contact. In her talk, Dr. Tarter will explore the question, are we alone? For more information and free tickets, you can go to uhifa.ticketbud.com. And now joining us here in the studio is Aaron Rosa from the Hawaii Research Center for Futures Studies to tell us about an upcoming Governance Futures Lab. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Hey, thanks. It's great to be back on Bite Marks. Well, great to have you, Aaron. I mean, what is exactly, well, I'll give you a little, um, uh, just the the listeners a little background. You know, there's this um, organization in Palo Alto called the Institute for the Future. That's right. And they're conducting an actual two-day event. So maybe you can give us a little background on what that two-day event is and how do we in Hawaii play a role in that. I'd be happy to. Um, So, yeah, the Institute for the Future is hosting right now what they're called the Reconstitutional Convention. Mm-hmm. Um, it's part of a series of events that's been put on by the uh, their Governance Futures Lab. And what this weekend is intended to do is collect the best ideas for designing new forms of governance and then placing excellent creative minds to work on solving those design problems. Uh, so yeah, in fri- uh, sorry, on Friday they're going to have a very large convention in Palo Alto. They're going to have some great speakers there, um, some local futures researchers, uh, Jim Dater, Kaipo Lum, uh, Jake Dunnigan, who is head of research and technology over at the IFTF. And then those folks all have their sort of origins here in Hawaii. I mean, Jim Dater is actually the head of the Future Studies Department here. That's right. He's yeah. the head of the department and... Kaipo, Jake, a couple of other uh, presenters that day are alum from our program, mm-hmm. very unique program. We're still really proud of it. Uh, but they're also going to bring in a bunch of other talent, uh, Jamee Cascio, uh, Jane McDonagall of the like, gaming kind mm-hmm. of movement, mm-hmm. um, John Lee. I have a list here. It's like 50 people, five-minute talks apiece. There's going to be some great ideas in the room. Uh, after those ideas get spread around, they're going to come together and write up design briefs that creative minds can go to work on and say, how do we solve these problems mm-hmm. in governance for long-term futures planning? Well, I'd imagine the interest is to get as diverse uh, participation as possible because that's how you get ideas that might be outside of the box for someone in one area to hear and interact with someone from another. But can you give me some examples of the sorts of people that uh, you're hoping to bring into this event? Yes, yes. Um, well, we're hoping to bring into the Honolulu node. Uh, Hon- Honolulu will be participating as part of a global network of design nodes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Saturday, 
we're going to have a, a host of people, very diverse people, we hope, um, putting their creative efforts into solving these problems. Uh, so, you know, people who are great with code, people who are great with, you know, aesthetic presentation, people who are, have some experience in designing policy, designing institutions, organizational thinking, all these types of people, their input is critical to how we reimagine our governance mm -hmm. going forward. Uh, they're going to have people from Singapore, San Francisco City, um, oh my, the Santa Fe Institute, Texas Law, NYU. They're all going to be putting their information into these, you know, design briefs that we'll be working on. And then here we'll have, you know, broad, diverse set of minds going to work on solving them. So the timing for all this is uh, on, on Friday, they, they have the 50 presenters, they do their five-minute pitches, design briefs get generated on Friday, mm -hmm. and then on Friday night, they post it online, yep, right? Yep. And then we, here in Hawaii, and other places, will get a chance to look at those briefs and then work on it on Saturday. Absolutely. That's absolutely correct. We actually have, like I said, a worldwide network. So there's going to be design teams in Singapore, uh, Yangon, Myanmar, mm -hmm. New York, London, um, Al uh, Birmingham, Alabama, Palo Alto, San Francisco, and then here in Honolulu. I might have left somebody off. I hope that they don't get offended. But it, <laughs> they're probably they're, not listening to the show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and no, of course they are. Of course they are. But yes, uh, so there's going to be a lot of people working on this all day Saturday, like th across many different time zones. Mm -hmm. now, so, now, what is it that you think might result from you know, whatever ideas come out of Saturday? Uh, so all of those design teams will upload their ideas. Um, they'll put them on display under the Governance Futures Lab banner. And I th my hope is that those will become publicly available for the rest of the world to turn their own creative skills on, mm -hmm. to use as examples, as foundation, as a, a resource of, of input or knowledge that they might not have considered but will want to consider going forward. Good. So can you tell us uh, where someone can either follow this event as it unfolds or find more information because they would want to participate? And, uh, you know, what are the where and when, basically, is it taking place? Where and when. Okay. Uh, it's taking place this Saturday at the UH Manoa. Um, it's going to be an awesome day. More information can be found at iftf.org. And... Once you're on that site, go to search for Governance Futures Lab, and you can find a lot more information there. Fantastic. Very cool. IFTF.org. Absolutely. Thanks, Aaron, for joining us. No problem. Thanks a lot, guys. See you and, again. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Dr. Truck Nguyen and Brendan, Brendan Brennan, and they'll talk about digital citizenship. What are some of the bad behaviors that get accentuated online, and how can we bring out the best in our students? We'd love your thoughts or questions as part of the conversation, so please give us a call at 941-3689, or you can ring us toll-free from the neighbor islands, and that number is 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're monitoring Twitter. You can tweet us your questions at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe. True story, June 2001. A 10-year-old girl named Laura Buxton. Hello, I'm Laura Buxton. Let's go of a balloon. Phew. That balloon floats 140 miles and lands <laughs> in the yard of an entirely different girl named Laura Buxton. They're both Laura Buxton? Yeah. No. Yes. Maybe we were meant to meet. Is our world full of magic and meaning? Strange things do happen by chance. Or is it just chance? That's next time on Radio Lab. Saturday morning at 10. Next time on With Good Reason. 
You can't see them on the surface, but at the bottom of some of the world's largest bodies of water are areas called dead zones, where fish and other life can't survive. Robert Diaz tracks these dead zones, which are rapidly increasing. That's next time on With Good Reason, Thursday evening at 6.30, following Marketplace. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Dr. Truck Nguyen and Brendan Brennan. From And Dr. Nguyen is uh, an assistant specialist in the Curriculum Research and Development Group and conducts research and curriculum development in digital citizenship. And Brendan, returning to our show, he's currently working as a Google Apps architect with the Janus Group. He is also an educator and researcher at the University Lab School. And what drives people to act differently online than in real life? We love to hear your questions and comments. And, of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Dr. Nguyen, and I'll call you Truck. And Brendan, welcome to Bite Marsh Cafe. Oh, thank you very much for having us. Thanks. Great to be here. Now, I'll, um, you know, I want to get a real basic uh, sort of definition of what exactly is dig- digital citizenship when you start to take a look at this and tackle that sort of term. Yeah, well, digital citizenship is a term that was uh, first bandied about about six or seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's really looking at how you behave in an online environment, how you behave uh, responsibly, how you're, how effective you are online, and also how efficient you are, um, how quickly you can do things, basically. But you look at all the things that you're able to do, and you look at the decisions that you make online and how that contributes to the society that you live in. Mm-hmm. So it's all tied into your world and how you perceive your world and how you perceive what's right and wrong. So that's digital citizenship. Well, that's, you know, that's pretty fascinating because, you know, there's, in, in my mind, there's not a whole lot of difference between what you just described and how you would conduct yourself in real life. Exactly. So uh, we'll get to this topic. And what, is, what happens when, you know, somebody goes online versus in real life? And, and how does that sort of change their perception of society and their responsibility to, you know, the, the, the society and, and the culture that surrounds them? Yeah, you know, when you're online nowadays, the the most fascinating and powerful thing is that you can reach millions of people with one click or one swipe nowadays with your little finger. Um, You can do that so quickly. Mm -hmm. And that's the major difference between an an online interaction and a face-to-face or an everyday interaction that you might have. Um, There are different kinds of people who are online. Some like to create different personas of their own self. Some people like to still convey themselves exactly like how they are in an everyday situation. But what we find in in schools is that some of the most quiet students in the classroom blossom in an online environment, whereas some of the more boisterous ones in a classroom, they don't really say much online. Mm -hmm. And so there are different ways of, of expression, and the online mechanism has allowed people to explore that more. And it's also allowed people to look at things that they want to look at versus waiting for someone else to tell them about it. But that disparity that you describe is also probably why as many parallels as it is natural to draw between online communities and in-person communities, mm-hmm. that's probably why that difference exists because people do interact differently and it's a completely different context, probably a different part of their brain. Now, Brendan, uh, 
Truck talked about digital citizenship in terms of being a good citizen, being a participant in your community, and I think even more specifically speaking, how to participate in the democratic process, how to be uh, help drive good decisions and informed decisions. But it doesn't sound like there's going to be much uh, difference between that in our conversation and being a good person online, the same sort of socialization skills that we also send our students to, to basically learn how to interact with people and be good people. Yeah, I think I think that's you're describing the 21st century challenge, right? Um, and and as, as an educator, I'll be the first to admit that um, we've done a terrible job of preparing kids for even the 20th century, let alone the 21st century. So how do we prepare kids for for jobs that don't exist, for information that hasn't been created, um, for for problems that they're going to need to solve that we don't know what they're going to be in 20, 30, 40 years? Um, so I think I think the challenges that you're talking about and and Getting kids ready for these things is something as educators that we're struggling with. Um, and we're starting to find some ways around, you know, and, and feel in the dark a little bit. Um, but I think at this point, we're, we're really – students are coming to us with a skill set and 20, their own understanding of digital citizenship that we are already behind the ball, right? I mean, they are digital natives, they are born with a PlayStation or, you know, an iPhone in their hands, right? Um, and we're talking – we're the digital immigrants, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I, I, I had a Sony Walkman when I was a kid, and that was amazing, <laughs> right? So we're, we're already behind the ball, and we're starting to research a lot of the different ways that we can start to get caught up. Um, and we don't even know if that's appropriate. Maybe we shouldn't get caught up. Maybe they should start taking the lead on some of these things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Brendan Brennan and Dr. Truck Nguyen about digital citizenship and preparing our today's students to be the leaders of tomorrow. And we know that this is a topic that probably resonates with many of you out there, particularly parents, certainly with me. If you've got a thought or a suggestion or a question, please give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, Truck, I know that there's... Uh, there's that tendency when you say that our students are digital natives that, you know, just like how my mom just sort of said, all right, you, Ryan, are going to handle programming the VCR. It's starting to get the point like, okay, well, my kids are just going to have to figure out all this stuff because I'm too old for it already. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is the focus is the, the, the natural focus on tools versus the process. Because it, right now there's, for example, like people are trying to do classes on Facebook and classes on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's like what if my kids, I decided to in, in, you know enroll my kids in a class for Friendster or enroll my kids in a class for dial-up BBSs. What good does those tool-specific classes do for them when it's actually a bigger picture that they have to address? Right. Yeah, you're right. It is about the process. It's no longer about the tools because tools can be used in so many different ways. You, you look at a hammer and you can use it to build a gorgeous house or you can use it to destroy a wall, right? The tools are, are just there for us to use. It's, it's up to us as educators really to figure out how can they best use those tools to be creative to collaborate with others, to communicate well, Mm -hmm. and really to be positive contributors to society. And so we're we're focusing less on the tools and we're focusing more on the processes and the problem solving that goes with that. Yeah, and and I think our natural tendencies as as educators towards the tools is because we really don't understand how they work as well as the kids do. Um, We we as educators are looking for any excuse to, and I hate the word, to engage kids, right? Um, You know, and they think Facebook or LinkedIn or these kinds of things are engaging for kids. So that means if they're engaged, they must be learning. 
But I could engage kids by, you know, juggling four balls while standing on my head and they'll be paying <laughs> attention. But what am I going to do with that tool? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a lot of the things that we're studying with Trucks Help and things at the University Laboratory School is great. We've got the tools. Wonderful. Now, how do we use it and how do we make it um, pedagogically consistent with what we understand about student learning. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you know, we want to encourage our listeners to give us a call here. And, of course, that number is 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine, And, of course, that number even works for the mainland. And we want to welcome John, who's calling all the way in from Berkeley. And, of course, we've got we love our mainland listeners as well. Welcome, uh, we'll, welcome John, to Bite Mart Cafe. Hey, aloha, guys. Aloha. Great show tonight. Thanks. I'm loving it. I try to catch it streaming over the over the net as much as I can. Um, so uh, this is a topic that's kind of dear to my heart. And I, I kind of I, I love that you guys are moving beyond the tools discussion. I think that's really important. And um, I, the way I look at it is we sort of have to give students a reason to be good citizens and help them understand what that means. Um and the way to do that is kind of first just by fighting bad content with good content and sort of helping and, and, and pulling them in directions that are inspiring. Um, and then, like we said, moving beyond how the tools work, but more importantly, how online interactions work. So, right, like you could totally flame someone on a bulletin board system 20 years ago. You can flame them on Facebook today. Um, but what is that interaction about, you know, or what does it mean – to be a friend or bring in stories from the media like how the New York Post totally misidentified these bomber guys, you know, the first high school kids. Um, And so, uh, and I think it's important to keep adults in the interaction, but I had a question, which is kind of how is this curriculum being developed right now, and are there maybe model curriculums uh, that you guys have seen or around the country or programs that are in development that can kind of help educators sort of, you know, crowdsource this uh, crowdsource this educational challenge and um, and solve the problem together. Great. Thanks. Thanks. Good question. Shrek, thanks, do you want to tackle that? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, Jonathan. That's, that's a really excellent question. We here at the University of Hawaii, in conjunction with the University Laboratory School, we've been developing a curriculum framework. It's called Developing Wise Kids. And what WISE stands for is Web and Internet Safe Educated. So in this framework, we tackle a lot of the issues that you've been talking about. How, what is it like to behave online? How do people perceive you? Um, what are the issues that the laws are tackling right now? Um, would you behave that way if somebody found out tomorrow? Would you behave that way if nobody ever found out? You know, would you behave that way if it was blasted all over the front page of the newspaper or it was sent out on Twitter or if it was posted in Facebook? Would you take that picture? Would you send that picture? Would you forward it? So we do talk about all these things and how they communicate in both casual settings and in professional settings. Our children don't understand a professional setting because they're kids. Mm -hmm. We have to allow them to be kids, but we also have to try to expose them or begin to expose them to a more um, professional level of interaction, which they don't know until we purposefully introduce them to it. So the framework is out there. There's some amazing national things, too. There's, a, there's one called Enough is Enough, which was developed by a group of moms who are dealing with cyberbullying cases in their own areas. And the, the head of that organization, Donna Rice Hughes, is, is getting honored, actually, for a lot of her work 
um, by the International Society for Technology and Education. And the FBI here locally in the Honolulu office, they're doing amazing things. Um, we also have a detective, a retired detective, Chris Duque, who does really great work in internet safety education too. So there's a, there's a lot that's going on um, that people can tap into. Now, Brandon, um, when I hear enough is enough, when I hear about uh, the cyberbullying angle, and certainly the headlines have been full of unfortunate stories of students doing things that I'm sure they thought was just funny or, or mean but in a cute way and it just being blown way, way out of proportion and leading to some very tragic ends. And I'm wondering, though, that and this is something I struggle with with my kids, it seems that the most effective stories that I can tell them in terms of how to behave correctly online are these worst-case scenarios that, you know, if you bully someone and they are depressed, that they might make a bad decision or you might be charged with uh, adult crime for this behavior. Is there, a, is there at all kind of a rough idea of what might be the other way to approach that, the model best case scenario that would still resonate with kids and not make it sound like you're saying, be a good boy and you'll get cookies? Well, I think that's that's not just a, a, a question that we're struggling with now. It's a question that we've always struggled with is, is how do you teach kids that character is the thing that you do um, when you're alone? You know, the, you do, it's always choosing to do the right thing even when nobody's looking. Uh, the problem with the Internet and the ability to transfer all this information so quickly is that they have multiple opportunities to do terrible things, right? When In the old days, you could only do terrible things when you're interacting with people physically, right? Um, so because there are more opportunities to do bad things, it makes our challenge even more difficult. And I know, you know, I, I equate this to, uh, I think you brought up a little bit, what's the example that we can show them or how can we guide them in the right way? And, you know, it's kind of like the... Uh, the the night before prom or the day before prom, they have the, the crashed up drunk driving car, you know, sitting in the park it, parking, lay, mm-hmm, parking lot mm-hmm. to show them, oh, this is what could happen, right? And I think there's enough examples not only on the news but in their everyday life to see the impact of cyberbullying and, 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 and those things on their friends as well as that person in Iowa who, you know, you know was – went you know, crazy because somebody made fun of them. So I, I don't know – if we really have a model for helping kids yet, I think we're still trying to work towards that. One of the problems is the uh, desensitizing, right, that after these things happen so often, they just don't become important anymore. They aren't really news anymore. Mm-hmm. And the kids will continue to do things that kids have always done, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but the challenge is definitely there, and there's no, there's no right answer for that. I think one of the things is as parents and educators, we need to be vigilant. Um, and we need to establish safe environments and just, you know, let them know what the expectations are um, so that it's clear what the right way to act is and what it isn't. And if they misbehave or they do the wrong thing, that there have to be consequences. Now, Chuck, you mentioned uh, something early in the show about how online is an environment where you can now all, all of a sudden reach a million people with a, a, a click of, a, you know, of your mouse or or uh, you know, off of a Facebook, uh, um, let's say, posting, mm-hmm. and when you have the ability to reach that many people, that element of celebrity, where you know, kids, uh, you know, they might uh, feel like, you know, I may not be the most popular person at school, but you know, if I do the this crazy prank, I might, mm-hmm. you know, get a lot of attention on on YouTube or yeah. Facebook or you know, or uh, you know, do a quick video on on Vine or something. Now, 
you know, some of the crazy things that are, are kind of online right now is, you know, like, uh, I don't know, taking a spoonful of cinnamon and, you know, oh, getting, a, getting a rush on that. I know, I know previously <laughs> there was a, something that was pretty funny where um, people were doing these, these planking kind of uh, oh, yeah. uh, memes will never die. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> but so, so, you know, and like, Brendan, you said kids will be kids and, you know, they'll do all kinds of stuff. But how do you advise them or what do you, what do you consult with them in terms of they want to, you know, they want to explore, they want to. Uh, try these, uh, you know, things, you know, and you kind of want them to, to learn as they go along, but mm-hmm. then how do you coach them along the path? Right. It's, it's, it's exactly what Brendan said earlier. It's about having a kid understand their personal sense of right and wrong and making those choices. But, you know, sensationalism is, is really the name of the game right now. That's how kids will get the attention and they want to do that. So, One of the things that we do talk to them about are what are some positive ways you can do this? And a really great example that I I tend to talk to my students about is what happened in Christchurch, New Zealand. And after uh, some of the earthquakes that happened down there, the students were the ones who got together and create. And instead of having mob scenes or flash mobs, they leveraged that and they created community groups where they all showed up with shovels to help shovel away the debris from the earthquake. And that was one way that they used Facebook to do that. Mm -hmm. And suddenly it was all over Twitter also. And then you had thousands and thousands of young people showing up to help out with the recovery efforts. And that was all through social media. So there are really positive examples out there also. Mm. But one of the things I do admit to is that we we do scare the children sometimes. (laughs) And we tell them, you know what? When you turn 18, you are legally responsible for every single action you do. And so we do try to expose them to the laws that are related to online behavior as they get older into the junior or senior years in high school. And we we lay it on pretty thick because we don't want them to make the mistakes and get themselves in trouble and be labeled a criminal in the future. Mm -hmm. Well, I can certainly see kind of the... The, the ways that that can be compelling to them because what students are also hearing is thanks to the internet, thanks to technology, anybody can be a star. Mm-hmm. Anybody can have an audience. Mm-hmm. I, Carly, you know, web show, <laughs> just turn on your webcam and do whatever you want. We now have an entire generation of people who think that it's possible to make a living being famous mm-hmm. for being famous. Right. Like that is your, that is why you're famous because you're famous. Yeah. And I just find that fascinating. How do you Use that compelling energy and say, yes, this reach exists, but why Why use it to do something embarrassing or do something that's just silly, and why not use it to do something that's that's worthwhile? And I can certainly see the example of let's all do come together and do a, a community service project, for example, um, with the students that you've seen or worked with. Uh, are, is there any specific example like that that, that has resonated for, for you? Well, I'll tell you what. I, I think you know we try and see those those opportunities. I mean, they're this exhibitionism that this generation is growing up with. They can't wait to show on YouTube what they do, how they sing, how they dance, even if it's terrible. Um, they want to show. So we're trying to corral that in our classrooms um, through collaborative interactions with each other and demonstrations and having them go up to the front of the room and be, you know, exhibit some of these things that they've learned rather than the song and the dance or, you know, how they, you know, eat cinnamon or whatever it is. (laughs) So so we're really trying to corral that and kind of focus it into the right direction because it's it's inherent in them now. Mm -hmm. And we can capitalize on that unlike we were able to do 40 years ago. Our students beg to get up in front of the class to demonstrate their understanding of a mathematical problem. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, 
I wasn't even given the opportunity because the teacher didn't think we had the capability. Right. So now we're in a different place. We're in a different space because of the technology, you know, good and bad. Yeah. And, you know, there was a couple years ago where we first turned on the ability to chat mm. in our school. And I admit I was lurking in the chat rooms, <laughs> just sort of watching to see what the kids would do. And what a fascinating thing happened. It was Mr. Brennan's class. It was 8 o'clock at night. And they were all talking math. They were all helping each other with the math problems. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I thought they were going to be talking about who knows what. But they were talking math. And it's because we turned on that ability for them to talk to each other in a situation where they could do it all at the same time rather than trying to call each other and then one kid call another and then connect another kid. And they could all do it. But it was in a very safe environment that was controlled by the school. And it was fascinating. You know, I like uh, this uh, this perspective of perhaps the young generation, there's much more of that performer uh, that is inherent in them that perhaps, you know, the online presence is bringing out. So I want to talk a little bit more about that. I want to hold that thought. We'll be back, right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Dr. Chuck Nguyen and Brendan Brennan about digital citizenship. What are some of the more creative ways that digital citizenship is taught in schools? And we'd like to hear your ideas as well. Again, you can give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. We've even got a question on Twitter queued up. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto Casper. It's one thing to master cooking techniques and entirely another to master flavor. Join us this week with Indian chef Raghavan Iyer for the Indian flavoring tricks that will echo through everything you cook. That's The Splendid Table from APM. Saturday morning at 9, following Weekend Edition. Imagine never being alone ever again. Imagine sharing your innermost thoughts with your best friend, a robot. When we construct robots, we are changing ourselves. We are changing what we are willing to consider a relationship. I'm Guy Raz, the promise and the peril of our robot overlords. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Sunday at noon. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Truck Nguyen, Dr. Truck Nguyen, and Brendan Brennan about the new generation of digital citizens. And how have attitudes about the web differed from one generation to the next? You can give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands or even from the mainland. And, of course, right before the break, we were talking a little bit about the, this very question and you know, I don't know, growing up as a digital immigrant, uh, I've, I've, I've known the world without the Internet. I've known the world, uh, you know, trying to make a relationship with a person face-to-face. Uh, and this idea of being a performer right, really never dawned on me because you could sort of sit back in the back of the room and, you know, take your classes and not worry about being thrust into the limelight. And, and for a lot of... Uh, uh, people like myself, Alisa, you know, I, I I didn't really crave that, but then now with the tool that the tools that we have at our disposal, with the internet, with the applications, with the web, with one click you could be in front of a million people. So why not put up a video? Why not put up a crazy, you know, let's say song that you want to sing or or something or or uh, a crazy photograph, and now you potentially could become a star overnight. And is that something? 
that is a new characteristic that's being more, um, let's say, uh, inherent in some of the young kids growing up? Or, I mean, is it something that they, they realize, hey, I could do this, so why not get in front and perform and, you know, be the person I want to be? I mean, absolutely. I mean, why wouldn't we encourage it? Right. Mm-hmm. But it's encouraging it in a safe, safe manner. Right. Um, you know, the, the, the most recent local stars, you know, the, the, the kid Christian, who was the track star and he fell down and he did the worm. Oh, right. You know, uh-huh. Right. And he got a million hits and he was on Good Morning America or whatever it was. Um, and that's great. And we want our kids to be recognized for their personality traits, for their skills, for their capabilities. Um, but we also want them to recognize that the internet has uh, and uh, has other opportunities available to it, um, like you know, like some of the work that you're doing with open data and things like that. I mean, it's um, we're mobilizing, we're mobilizing people to move towards a better place, right? So yeah, individualism is great; it's the American way, all those things. But now, what else can we do with this yeah. besides exhibit? Well, yeah. um, building on that truck, I mean, I did want to ask you. I mean, certainly. I also think that, you know, in Hawaii, we have cultural uh, f- frameworks and things that are a little different. I would say that, you know, perhaps uh, in more Western cultures, the individual is is king. It's all about expressing yourself. Go out there, f- wave your geek flag or your freak flag <laughs> and just be proud. Whereas perhaps in other cultures and certainly the way I was brought up, much to my dad's chagrin now that I'm an obnoxious person, that it's all about <laughs> being part of a team and being part of a community and not, you know, not making A, not not going out there and being uh, uh, a star, but just doing what you need to do to be a part of a, a community. So how do you see that challenge that uh, where we do want to embrace and encourage individuality, but perhaps that has to be tempered with the importance of also uh, working with other people? Yeah, the the individualism is something that's quite fascinating for those of us who study it. Uh, the kids really want to express themselves. And like Brendan said, we always encourage expression and creativity. What's For me, when I talk to some of the students, I always ask them, if you post something about yourself, you're choosing to do that, and that's fine, but would you post something about someone else without their permission? And that's where we run into problems, is when people are taking pictures of others and posting it without their permission, or they're taking video, and sometimes it's to get a laugh, like you said earlier. It's embarrassing, it's funny. Before, it was limited to a very small audience. Now, click. It's out there, and it may never, ever get deleted Mm because you can delete it off your machine, but it'll never get deleted from all the other servers that it hit and pinged around the world. Um, So individualism, definitely. Here in Hawaii, we find that the kids don't really say it's all about me, but it's all about us, and they tend to post in groups. And what you find is you find that there are, are kids who hang out together. They tend to post the same kinds of things. And you'll find a group of people doing that over and over again. But it's not unlike those of us who are out there who go and we seek out the same people who love to bake cupcakes. And we become part of this cupcake baking group online. And we don't meet each other ever, but we all have come together around this central theme of cupcakes. Um, The kids are doing the same thing. So they're looking for other people who have the same interests. And sometimes we encourage that um, rather than saying don't do it. Because you can really come up with better ideas and great ideas and maybe even oppositional ideas that drive the world forward. Well, so so what I'm hearing, though, is that uh, on one hand, there's sort of the individualism. And, you know, in our Western culture, we really uh, sort of put that up as a, a shining example of, of, you know, being an American to be sort of an individual. 
we also emphasize the idea of, of tribes. I mean, I, I know the word tribe has always been used in, in the context of education. So mm-hmm. you have cohorts, you have groups working together. So there's a sense. And of course, we're all social beings. So we like to be a part of a, a group of people. So how do you balance between, you know, this, this um, on one extreme, you know, being individual and, and just being out there as a, uh, let's say, a free radical. And then at the other hand, you have these sort of tribes, but then they, 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 the tribe might function as a, you know, as a perhaps deviant or maybe, you know, it's, it's just working its way <laughs> toward a, you know, sort of its own little entity. Um, where do you find that balance, Brendan? Well, I, I'm not sure there is. Um, if there's, if you have an idea or you like something, if you have a hobby, you're going to find a group of people that enjoy that same hobby, that mm-hmm. same hobby, no matter what, whether it's cupcakes or being a truther, you know, whatever it is, you're going to find some somebody that's going to instill you with confidence about your own beliefs, and that we naturally seek that out. That's that's being human. It's whether on a global scale, right? Mm-hmm. We all want to do those things. So I think you know we're trying to look at um, some of this internet safety and this digital citizenship, these 21st century skills, with an understanding that it's not just a local tribe anymore, right? I mean, we are global tribes connected globally. All I mean, we we have con- we had a video chat with a school in Southeast Louisiana the other day, and our kids connected there, and they found out they had commonalities. Next, it's Africa and China and things like that because we have the technology to do those things. But how do you alter? our thought process? How do you help the kids start to bring in all of this different culture and information, you know, attitudes and world attitudes? How do you start to bring that into your small tribal classroom mm-hmm. that's local? Mm-hmm. And that's a huge challenge for us. Um, and the kids are already, they're already seeing it. They're already facing this dilemma. And we're not doing a very good job of supporting them as they face it alone behind their computer screens at eight o'clock on a Saturday night. Mm-hmm. And we need to start exploring ways to do that because there's a lot of bad stuff out there. Mm-hmm. We need to help them to navigate away from it or to understand it first before it gets. Yeah. Well, you know, from my personal experience, I, like my daughter in middle school had a little rough. She felt very isolated. But thanks to the Internet, she found a global community of Doctor Who fans and fans <laughs> of certain things <laughs> that she became very comfortable with. And they cheered her on. They encouraged her. And I thought there's the benefit of it. She has friends at high school now. They all kind of live in this little clique, not, you know, just sharing things freely. And then one day on Instagram, a picture of her shows up posted by another kid while she was sleeping in class. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) put on the brakes. Mm -hmm. You know, all of a sudden what they felt comfortable with as a group when it leaks out to the public and unfortunately when daddy sees it, it becomes an entirely different animal. That's why I liked what you said, Truck, that these students were actually discussing math in the classroom. I I mean, in the online chat room, even after hours. But I think part of it also comes from the fact that they probably knew that the teacher had access to it and could see perhaps what they were writing. So you behave differently um, knowing what is visible. So I wanted to get to this question from AG on Twitter who said, you know, we're talking about these these perhaps threats or, or, or issues with other people seeing information. He says, with the passage of CISPA in the House and other bills relating to information about us traded by the government or even mm-hmm. corporations, are we teaching students about that, that mm-hmm. not only can maybe your dad see this embarrassing photo of you, but maybe an insurance company or maybe the government uh, can see this stuff, too, and how that role, uh, plays in their growing up? Well, I mean, here's, here's a great question. Um, the last time you had an interaction with, uh, you know, Gmail or you downloaded something from the App Store and we just click agree, 
on all of those end user license agreements, right? We just mm-hmm. we do, we don't read them, and but we want our children to be safe. We want them to read them. So we make a, we have a contract with the government or the businesses that we purchase from or whatever it is that most times we give them permission to take from us. Um, and I think that needs to be part of whatever education or curriculum that we have is mm-hmm. that you know what maybe you should read those things. You know, because they can they can have some sinister things in them or some great things in them. Um, but we're it's tough for us to do that if we're not doing it ourselves. I've never read one. I, I don't have the attention to do it. And I just generally trust. I'm going to trust somebody that I've never met who's, you know, they have their own agenda with making money off of my information. Eh, whatever. Just mm-hmm. agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There are laws out there that protect children in particular. One is the Ch- Children's Internet Protection Act. That one states that you cannot collect information from children without parental permission. There's also the other one, which is COPPA, which is a right, Children's right. Online Privacy Protection Act. Um, that well, so one, a lot of those laws are, mm-hmm. you know, they that's how the, the cutoff of 13 years old comes out. And my favorite story about my daughter, boy, I'm embarrassing her today, mm. <laughs> was she had a Facebook account and she had put a different birth date on it, um, mm-hmm. but then forgot and felt bad that it was showing that she was like older than she was. Right. So she actually wrote, wrote to Facebook support and said, oh, actually, this is my birthday. And they deleted her account. And she's like, oh. But yeah. I mean, my point being, even with those laws, kids will circumvent them easily to, to get access yeah. to these And tools. we give them mixed messages, too, because on one hand, I'm standing there saying, guard your privacy. Don't give, you know, real information online, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then on the other hand, I'm saying, but don't lie. So what do they do? They create profiles where they're 57-year-old men online. And, you know, then these laws don't come into play because they have lied by saying that they were 57-year-old men because I told them don't lie. Yet at the same time, I tell them don't give out private information. So mm-hmm. we as adults do have to figure that out. But the way we figure that out, one venue that I found is to have constant communication with the kids, have their voice be part of the curriculum and that's something that has been very, very powerful. They drive some of the discussion because they live it. I don't live it. I'm I'm old. And they know that, <laughs> unfortunately. But if you have the student voice as part of the digital citizenship discussion, you'll find that they start talking about things that you would never have dreamed about or fathomed because we don't know it like they do. Now, I'm, I'm curious. Where do you feel the line is drawn between your responsibility as educators to educate students about digital citizenship and where does uh, the family or the parents have that responsibility? Where does that line get drawn? And what is your, as you design this for classrooms, where do you see the the different roles being played out? Well, I, I think the parents will tell you that it's the teacher's responsibility mm-hmm. and the teachers will tell you that the parents aren't taking enough responsibility mm-hmm. and the students are happy with both of those answers, mm-hmm. right? So um, I think the, 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 the goal that we have at the laboratory school is to build community through the technology. I mean, it's it's now we, we invite parents in to, to view their grades remotely using our power school. Um, we've also invite them in for, you know, some of this Internet safety training that Truck has provided for the parents that we have. Um, we have the kids make videos on YouTube about the Internet safety procedures and our appropriate use policy that the parents are supposed to watch and learn from. Mm-hmm. The kids have to take exit exams before they get their com- computers. So we're really trying to build um, community. And one of the, the, the interesting things that we're trying to research now, um, since we've opened up our one-to-one program, is once the kids take their computer and they leave, 
Um, the biggest concern from parents is what are they going to do and what are they going to access? What are they going to look at? So what we've done is we've actually, we have a router. It's an extra router that ties directly to the, to the computer that we issue them. They take it home. They plug it into the back of their existing router. It only communicates with their computer, and it can filter off of their own home network. Mm-hmm. So now we've created parent buy-in because now they feel safer about the program. And because they feel safer, we can move forward together as a community with mm-hmm. all the stakeholders present. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and, you know, this coming summer we have a parent-teacher collaboration workshop. It's called a cyber, cyber safety action team, and we encourage parents and teachers to work together. Um, the parents have... In my in my personal opinion, they have more responsibility. In fact, um, keeping and educating the kids to be safe online. So this workshop is a free workshop that we're offering. It's in August. I can't remember the exact Saturday that it's on, but if they're interested in it, they can always contact myself or Brendan, and and we'd let them know more about it. Well, and we'll ask you for the website at the end, and then we can post it up on our uh, show notes. Okay. And speaking of uh, things coming up, Brendan, you. Uh, quickly wanted to let us know that uh, you've made some some interesting headway on the technology project. Well, going back to what we're talking about and, and, and digital citizenship, um, Google and Lenovo have, have been generous enough to um, pledge uh, up to $250,000 worth of Chromebooks for the charter schools um, to start exploring one-to-one opportunities. Um, so they're pledging up to $250,000 in matching money for hardware for every dollar that's raised for professional development um, to be hosted at the school level. So um, if, if you'd like to be a part of that effort, um, you can go to hawaiicharterschools.com um, to, uh, to make some donations. But we'll also be having a fundraiser on May 3rd uh, for Hawaii Charter School Network um, at the, I want to say, Prince Hotel. Hawaii Prince. Hawaii Prince. Yeah. So, uh, and Chuck, you know, just kind of in closing, you know, in terms of getting this curriculum out to the broader DOE, how is that going? You know, it's it's going really well. We've talked to a lot of principals and vice principals, a lot of teachers. The counselors are actually very critical to this effort also. So we have been working with some counselors. The schools can always um, come and contact us, mm-hmm. and we'll go out and we'll do workshops and professional development for the teachers. So at any time, they, they can do that. Great. So how would someone do that? What's your website, for example? Our website is www.hawaii.edu slash crdg. And if they go to that site and they click on professional development, learning technologies, they'll see a whole series of six different kinds of workshops related to Internet safety and digital citizenship. Well, that's great. And this is definitely an area that I think we should spend a lot more time uh, discussing and, and, and trying to promote in terms of uh, you know, digital citizenship with our, within our uh, schools and, and, and uh, students. Dr. Chuck Nguyen and Brendan Brennan are both from the University Lab School, and we want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk about uh, the bills moving through the legislature and their current status, which ones made it, and what can we do? Yeah, which ones didn't, Mm -hmm. and what can we do better next year? And of course, if you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on BiteMarksCafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarkscafe.org. Of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And please follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And, of course, we leave you with our song pick of the week. Uh, today is Ghost I've Met. Oh, yeah, it's uh, Little Green Cars and uh, Night Owl. 
And we'll see you next week on another edition of Bike Marks Cafe. Burns, cross the sky.